and and this is the part that I that I never know how to I never know what words to pick. The ventilator's down my throat, and I have all these tubes and, and whatnot. But but um, Jamie's on this side holding my hand, and my sister's on this side holding my hand, and I, all my my family is there. My son is there, um, and I just am overwhelmed with gratitude. I mean, just it's 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 just, I was the essence of that word. I made it to the other side. That was Kelly Morgan Thrush, and this is the Running Deep Podcast with me, your host, Kent Mullins. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. Um, you know, this this episode is a very special one. Um, Kelly reached out to me... Ooh, couple weeks ago or about two weeks ago um just in regards of you know him resonating with my story and wanting to start a run for your life in tucson arizona which was extremely humbling um you know i who would have thought that you know my my story would have reached or would reach across the pond um now, you know, in this episode, we dive deep into his story, uh, his bouts with alcohol, depression, um, and, and literally drinking himself to death. Um, but you'll have to listen to get the full story. And yeah, please enjoy the podcast. It is a long one, but you know, that's what we're here for. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really, really oh. appreciate it. Absolutely, man. Thank you for inviting me. I, I appreciate it. Humble. Um, no, seriously. Like, I, I, again, how we connected is just, you know, for this is for the listeners as well. Um, so basically how we connected was, you know, through, how did, how did you even hear about it? Like, what, what's, what's the whole story behind that? Well, I, I actually heard your podcast uh, with the Ultra Running Guys um i guess it was about two weeks ago now when i caught it i don't know when you guys you know recorded it yeah, but i yeah. caught it about two three weeks ago something like that and i was out riding my bike uh that particular ride with i don't know it was a few hours long and so i caught your podcast uh and it i mean it just we i mean we've talked about it, it connected with me i mean your yeah. story my story are are very identical very similar and so um after about a week or so I actually reached out to Jeremy and, and uh, um, Jeff over there with the ultra running guys. And I asked him, I said, Hey, how's the best, best way to get in touch with you. Yeah. Uh, and then they kind of you know, put us together and we've been best friends ever since. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's funny how like that space, because I did pretty much the exact same thing with them. I like, I was scrolling through um, podcasts, just listening, you know, for my trail runs and whatnot. And then they pop up. I'm like, oh, you know, I'm going to reach out to them because that's like uh, that Charlie Engel story. Right. Yep. You know, that was like, oh my God, I related to that. So then they got me in touch with Charlie Engel. So he's actually coming um, to Australia in August. So he's running oh, wow. I think 15, oh no, a thousand miles, I think. Oh, wow. Okay. I think it's a thousand miles. It's from Broken Hill which is, yeah, a thousand miles away to pretty much just next door to mine. 
Um, and he's doing it with Dean Karnazes. Sure. Yeah. So hopefully I can connect with him and, you know, just. That's pretty cool. He's one of my favorites. He is actually Charlie's uh, book, uh, The Running Man, yeah. was the first book I found when I started diving down this endurance mm. rabbit hole that I've, that I've had. He was, he was the first one. I read that book and I couldn't 36 hours. I think, I mean, it wasn't long at all. Oh, uh, you, you just go boom, boom, yeah. because you're so yeah. enveloped in it. You're like, Oh wow. And then next thing you know, you finish the book. Um, For sure. So I think this is a good sort of transition point into, you know, your story. Like you've connected to my story. You've connected to Charlie's story. So if you want to take it away, what what is your story like from start to finish? Let's let's just go for it because I think there's a okay. lot. These guys, the listeners, can take away so much from your story. So much. I took away so much from your story, and our stories are pretty much very much similar. Right. So, right. yeah, go take it away. Go for it. Love. I want to hear sure. it. Sure. Um. All right. So where to where to start? I guess. Um, gosh, I don't even know where to start, to be honest with you. So, uh, growing up, I, I grew up here in, in Tucson, Arizona, which is where I'm at right now in my house. Um, you know, grew up, I had two brothers and a sister. I am the second oldest, my older brother's, uh, just a few years, you know, or a few months older than me. I mean, we're 15 months apart or something along those lines. And then we have my sister and brother who are younger, good middle-class American home. I mean, it was, we, you know, I played baseball my whole life and they had their own scene, respective sports. Uh, and growing up, you know, in high school up until really college, mm. um, baseball was was life. I mean, I lived it, eat it, breathed it. I mean, the whole I was I was in my mind destined to be a major league baseball player at some point. Um, yeah. I, I wasn't quite good enough to pull that off, but <laughs> but that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I played at every waking moment. But, you know, to to put some perspective on where my journey takes me and where my story goes. Like when I was in high school, you know, I, I would hang out with all the kids and we would go to parties uh, and things like that. But, um, but I would leave early, you know, I'd tell them, Hey fellas, you know, you have a good time. Yeah, I'd head out yeah. at 11 or midnight. Cause I'd go out and work out on my own in the morning. I'd go batting practice or run or whatever I was going to do. Did you have anything from your childhood or anything that sort of played into you know, it, it seems to me that you, from, you know, very early on, you were very disciplined, you know. Well, and, that, oh. I mean, I had passions. I, I wouldn't say disciplined. I mean, I was, you know, a pretty normal teenager, but I, I think I was more uh, passionate about where I wanted to go, whether it was, you know, going to a four-year school to play baseball, or I had grandiose ideas about, you know, president of the United States. Mm. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I definitely had an idea that I, I wanted to be in a leadership role and, mm someone people looked up to, uh, you know, and had that carry myself in that sort of way. And, and I've always been able to relate to people, I think anyway, at least I feel like I have. Um, so that, so I don't want to make it sound like discipline. Like I have practiced every day, but I did organize workouts for the baseball team at five, five in the morning in high school in the off season. So yeah, and, and that's my, like, you've got you, my team out. That, that, that's what I mean. Like you, you've got some sort of leadership skill or, or some sort of discipline sure. in that area which sure. you know translates same as me you know i've always had that people person skill right able to talk to anybody and then sure. through the journey you completely lose it you just yep. lose that person and then yep. you know coming out the other side 
I can see how that, you know, that mindset has come that that's not discipline, but that sort of comes back with you wanting to start sure. a group and, and, and in your position, you know, you, you've always, it seems that you've always had that sort, like, sort of, um, you know, disciplined mindset, not disciplined, but you know, a regimented leader, sure. you're a leader. Yeah. There's, there's been some leadership yeah, stuff. I mean, I've been captain of, you know, pretty much every team I've been on, uh, yeah. except maybe in college. Uh, but you know, through high school, I mean, I was a captain as a sophomore on the varsity team and mm-hmm. things like that. So yeah, I think, I think in that regard, at least in my little, in my little circle of influence, sure, probably a bit, um, at least for the, you know, the, the, the small crew that followed around and I yeah. hung out with, um, probably to, to an extent, I guess that probably, yeah. probably is right. Cool. And then, so after, after all that, you know, you, you realized, okay, I'm not, gonna be on you know gonna be an amazing baseball player you know sure. be the president where, where does that sort of ramp up into what's what happened well yeah like like i you know i, I mentioned i i got to college uh and, and i found actually what i was actually very good at and better than most people was i could i, I was a pretty damn good drinker yeah uh, <laughs> college and i was i was more talent naturally gifted so to speak than than other people um and i always you know i'm, I'm loud i'm gregarious i'm you know some would say obnoxious i'm sure if you asked them yeah. <laughs> so you know when i was always you know and I, i've heard you talk about it you know that i was always that guy at the parties or at the bar where you know it's i had to take it one step further you know um, oh, you know there's yeah. there's one story this was after college this was i was working in, in a restaurant this point is a server. So I was young. I was probably, oh, I don't know, 21, maybe exactly. Yeah. But we had, uh, um, gotten off. I was, I was working at double as a server. So that's for those that don't know, when you work at double, you get there in the morning, you open up the restaurant, you work lunch, you have a little break mm-hmm. and then you head back, uh, for the dinner shift. So they cut us early. It was one o'clock in the afternoon, but we had a little bar that we all frequented, <laughs> you know, across the street. So we went over, grabbed some lunch and I had a couple of beers and a couple more beers and a couple of shots and pretty soon it was time for my shift at whatever time it was three or four uh, I, I wasn't gonna be able to go are you kidding there's no way like this, i can't make it so mm-hmm. at that point i was also one of the head trainers uh, mm-hmm. at the restaurant so i started getting on the phone and i found this this poor kid um i talked him into he had never worked he had just come out of training he had never worked a shift in his entire life we had a pretty busy restaurant oh man i uh, I get, yeah. I know what I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah. And I talked him into working for me because I was his trainer. I'm like, and he goes, well, shouldn't we get covered by the manager? I said, Oh, don't worry about the managers. I'll take care of that. Um, so I, I didn't ever call the managers. I called the host and said, yeah. well, told them what was going on and I was switching shifts. Now what I didn't know, <laughs> and for those people who used to work with me, that the section I was in was called the dungeon. Yeah. Uh, and so it was the furthest corner away from the kitchen from, you know, from anything. So it was the opposite end of the restaurant and it had two, eight top rounds tables. Uh, so there's 15 people and then two, four tops. So there was 24 people in the section. Uh, and you definitely don't give that to yeah, I, 20 uh, year old kids who are the first day out of training. So, um, yeah, I caught a talking to from, uh, from my manager who happened to know me growing up as a kid, he worked with my dad in the past, mm-hmm. uh, the next day when I showed up and he politely told me that I was not allowed to do that again. Yeah. Uh, and had I not known him probably since I was a kid, I, I, I would have gotten a lot more trouble, but 
So that's, oh, I get it. So I spent yeah. the rest of the day at that same bar. I never left my bar stool for 12 hours. Um, and so it was, you know, I was able to talk, like you said, and talk to anybody. I had three or four or 10, I don't even know, different groups of people that had come in and out of the restaurant that day. Yeah. And I just stayed and hung out, you know, and uh, waited till my friends all got off shift at like midnight and they came back to the bar after work and they said, are you still here? But, but yeah, by sure. that point, you know, you're, oh. you're gone and they've yeah. just come in. They say, oh, I get it. I, oh, it makes yeah. me cringe. I know. I know. And you'd think that moment would have kind of the light bulb would have been off. Like maybe this isn't healthy, your relationship to, to booze and partying, but it didn't not for many, many years to come and many, many mm. more stories, but yeah. Uh, so anyhow, that was, um, one of the stories, but I think looking back, um, alcohol is actually, um, it, it's, it, it's the defining moment where my competitive baseball career went out the window. Mm. So I was, it was my, uh, sophomore year in college. I went to a junior college here in, in Arizona, which is a two-year school. And, uh, it was our last weekend game, uh, or last regular season, I should say game. And it was out of town. So we had like a six hour bus ride. Uh, before the playoffs mm-hmm. uh, were starting, the postseason was starting. I had a huge Spanish final uh, that day that, that I was going to take the following day in the testing center because I wasn't going to be there. We were traveling. Uh, and we didn't, I didn't study. We all got booze. It was our last game. So we yeah. sat in the back of the bus and boozed it up for the last, next seven hours. So flat, fast forward to the next day, uh, I got to the testing center. I hadn't studied. Uh, so I made a little, you know, a little cheat sheet. Uh, and I got caught. Uh, from the testing center of course you know I'm, I'm, I'm sure I wasn't being slick about it yeah. uh, so they grabbed my stuff and they said we're gonna give this to your professor you know go talk to her tomorrow so I went into my professor and uh, thank goodness she liked me you know because um, yeah. I had the same professor for four semesters had A's in her class you know and had really succeeded in that Spanish class and I mean the look of disappointment on her face was uh, pretty powerful mm. But she did me a favor uh, and said, all right, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to put cheating on your transcripts, um, but I am going to give you a D so that you don't get credit for this class. You're going to have to take it over. Um, but you also won't be ineligible for the postseason. I said, oh, perfect. You know, thank you so much for doing me this favor. Yeah. I really appreciate it. So I finished up at that school. And then the following semester, I was going to my next school. And really, I, I I, I was slipping down that slope anyway at this mm-hmm. point, but I said, no, I want to continue to play baseball. So I went to the school here at Arizona, University of Arizona, down the street from my house um, that I'd grown up watching and wanted to play for this team. Mm-hmm. And so I was going to go as, uh, as a walk-up on. Um, now I knew the coaches, because again, this is my hometown. I knew the coaches. I knew some of the team, you know, some of the players I'd grown up playing with. So I was just going to go and walk on. And so as I go to register for school, I get all my classes. The first or second day I show up to the uh, registrars, you know, to get you know, mm. cleared to go try out for the team that following week. She says, oh, you can't, you can't try out. You're not, you're not eligible. And I said, I don't understand why I'm not eligible. She says, you only have 47 credits uh, or 46 credits uh, coming in and you're a junior in college. And so I was two credits short. You need 48. Yeah. And I only had 46 and that D in Spanish, which I had an A in the class. So oh, even if I had bombed that final, I would have passed. Yeah. Um, but because I got the D and that class didn't transfer over, I was no longer allowed to play ba- or try out for that team anyway. Uh, 
and that was it. I, I, you know, basically hung up the hung up my spikes at that point. Um, it's and, funny uh, how it all, you know, at the time, it's only you know the power of hindsight. Mm-hmm. You you look back and you go, oh shit! Imagine if yeah. I did that, and and you go, and you at the time you don't realize that you just get ah whatever, keep going on. Yeah, doing I was twenty doing. twenty one, you know, and I'm like, oh, there'll be other days, not a big deal. Maybe I'll try out in the spring, or you know, the coach knows who I am. He'll come get me. He'll fix it something along those lines whatever was going through my mind it sure as hell wasn't yeah look what i just did yeah uh, so uh started working at the restaurant that one i was talking about earlier and uh, i got i was good at it i'm people person i work hard it's yeah. fast paced and restaurants are fantastic and they're a lot of fun mm-hmm. um, it's usually typically speaking young extroverted um yeah. you always have cash on hand you know, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a fun environment and I got good at it and I got promoted quickly uh, to the point where I found, I had my first managing job at 21 years old. Um, yeah. And I got a, a, a front of the house managing job at a different restaurant. I actually got recruited to go work over here. Uh, at the time, that's where I met my, my first wife um, mm-hmm. was at that restaurant. We were both kids and um, she was pregnant and we were getting married and my life was starting there. And so I went into restaurant management uh, from there and started managing restaurants, which I did for the next 15 years, yep. give or take something along those lines. Um, and it was, it was a lot of fun, but for, I mean, I've heard you talk about it, but working in restaurants, I mean, it's that sort of lifestyle. I mean, you're, it's toxic. I was talking about yeah. this yesterday the hospitality lifestyle you know okay some people can do it some people can't do it you know we're the people that just can't do it right the hours they want you to work so upper management Mm -hmm. i was talking about this with um, my dad you know they expect you to work overtime just because it's like well oh yeah I, i can understand you know a couple hours overtime but when you're working you know we're doing 38-hour weeks is an average week. So let's say 40. You end up doing a 70-hour hour week. Sure. And you're going, mm-hmm. where, where does that let up? So I remember right. two weeks in a row, It for me, I did a 60-hour week and a 70-hour week. And I wasn't home. I wasn't, I was, right. I was coming home late, drunk, wake up at, you know, 10 or 11 o'clock, get ready. Yep. As soon as I woke up, oh, shit, put my stuff on, go out the door, do it all again. And it was yep. like, and 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 no one thought that was wrong. Everyone thought that was a normal thing to do. And it's, it is normal in restaurants for sure. Yeah. But it's like, you know, that is going to eat away at someone over a period of time. It, it, I did it for 15 years or so. And it was 70 uh, hour weeks were relatively normal. I mean, I wouldn't say I worked 70 hour weeks every week, but it wasn't uncommon. Uh, my longest stretch or worst stretch, um, I wasn't a general manager at this point. I was a kitchen manager, but I did 212 hours in two weeks uh, with one day. Um, and finally, uh, my, my GM, who I'm, I'm still good friends with, mm-hmm. uh, he saw me at a breaking point that at the end of that stretch, that you need to go home, mm-hmm. need some rest, <laughs> you know. And so, cause I was I, at that point I was in tears in the walk-in cause the freezer had just broke. And anyhow, I mean, I can talk restaurants, you know, all day. I mean, that's, um, but I was good at it. You know, it's, I mean, it is, it's fast paced. It's hard work. If you're on your feet, but it's people all day long. That's it. It's that, I think community being around people that like you, what I'm, what I'm starting to pick up here is that 
stop me if I'm wrong, because this is again our our story is very, 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 very similar. Yeah, I'm a people person. You know, I get along with a lot of people. I'm funny, happy. You know, I bring people up. Sure, but no one, no one saw what or how much hurt was going on inside because I was always people pleasing, always around good people. You know, being around people was my like my drug, in in a way. Yeah, but it 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 was like smoke and mirrors. No one knew. No one knew. I you know, you're at that bar for twelve hours. From an outside perspective, they go, oh, wow, like, oh, shit, Kelly's got a bit of a problem. But, you know, with your friends, they go, oh, you know, he's still there. He's having a good time. Join him. Like that. no one looks at that from an outside perspective because they're your friend and they're they're nice, good people, Right. you know, in in, or doing the same job as you. So there's, you know, there's not that third perspective to take to go, hey, you got to stop what you're doing. Like no one's... For me, no one saw because of that, you know, I, I put myself in that position. Well, and it's like you said, it's, it's part of the culture with restaurants. Yeah. It, it, no, it wasn't a problem because it wasn't a problem. We all did. You know, we hmm. all would stay at the bar. And, uh, you know, if we closed, once I started running sports bars, um, you know, it wasn't uncommon that we'd hang out there till four or five in the morning, go home, take a nap and literally come back to work in the morning. There were times I would leave the restaurants to the morning drive talk show on the radio mm. and come back to the restaurant during the same show uh, you know you go you, you, you'd hear it when they get there and say hey good morning traffic at 5 a.m and whatever mm. and then come back all right wrapping up at nine o'clock and i'm headed back to the restaurant uh, you know that that wasn't that, that happens and um and yeah no one no one knew it was a problem because i mean i can't say that people knew i had a problem i think anyway you know one said anything but but it wasn't it didn't stand out it you never know, does. I, yeah, never does. I was, I was, a, I was a needle in a stack of needles at that point because I mean, there were the people that stood out were the yes. mature ones that yeah. that went home, you know, and, and didn't go out partying with us. Those were the those were the outsiders. Um, so I mean, and that boy, we could probably swap restaurant stories for oh. <laughs> days. I, oh, I, I got oh, some, oh. I got some funny ones, you know, some funny ones. But um, so what that did was, you know, at that point I was married. Um, at 22, uh, had our first kid at 22, um, bought our first house at 22, mm-hmm. um, ended up having my daughter at, at 24. And that was my life. I worked restaurants, um, while my, my wife at the time, she stayed home and, and then eventually went back to school and got her all the way through her master's degree. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she stayed home with the baby so that I could go, you know, to work and, and, mm. and work my 60, 70, whatever it is hours a week. And that's how we had it. And it worked. I mean, I missed a lot of stuff because, because of that mm. Mm. birthdays and trips to the zoo and whatever. But so, um, ironically my drinking, which compared to normal quote unquote people, I mean, was not a normal relationship with alcohol, but it really didn't get bad until I tried to leave restaurants and work for myself. Yeah. That's when it, and that was in 2000 and I'm going to say 10 or so. Um, so that's when it really started to get bad about 10 years into my marriage, um, 2011 ish. Um, because now I was just working for myself. There was no, Mm. I I mean, I was in sales and I did insurance and I still saw people, but it wasn't like restaurants. Nobody knew me. Mm -hmm. I was going to and from appointments by myself in my car so I could stop for 
for booze at any time I wanted to. Um, I'd go get those little shooters and keep those in the car. And that was what I did every day. And that's really when it started to get bad. That's when, that's when I think it crossed over from you drink too much to you have an actual problem was in that two or two year stretch. Um, was there a, was there a tipping point or a defining moment? Because, you know, through my story, there wasn't a, such a, there was a five defining moments that, sure. you know, it took that many times to realize I've, I'm, I've, I've fucked up that, you know, how do you word it? You've got to change. You've got to do something. So for you was, was there, um, you know, you realized in that two years that well, one's not enough and two's too many. Where, when, where, where's that line? Where, where did you draw that line of go? Okay. I, I have an issue. I have a problem what am I going to do about it? Or was that just a gradual? So there were lots of moments that should have been defining moments yeah. that weren't, um, you know, I had, I mean, I had multiple, you know, chances and opportunities and things that you should have thought, okay, well now it's, it, this is time to quit. You know mm-hmm. um, you know, there's, there's been times where, you know, the, the, the kids, um, saw me drunk or passed out or stumbling um, um, uh, or yeah. one of the ones that, that hurts, uh, really the worst now, um, was when they were younger. I don't, um, I don't know how old they were, but they were young enough where I was reading bedtime stories and I couldn't, you know, I, I couldn't concentrate on the pages and I just would tell them something like we're going to, we'll read tomorrow. Dad's tired. I just got home from work or whatever it was. Um, but I couldn't concentrate on the pages and, and, you know, that one, even in the moment, that hurt and I still didn't do anything about it um you know and and I think somewhere and you hear this phrase often somewhere deep down I knew I had a problem I wouldn't talk about it because if I talked about it that made it real and then I would say and if I talked about it I I wouldn't be able to drink tomorrow what are you kidding there's there's no way I would address this hit the nail on the head yes that's exactly it. it you know when you when you there's power in words. There's power mm-hmm. in, in speaking that truth. Because sure. if you keep it in here, no one knows about it. But it's, sure. that, it's that, in, especially in recovery, it's mm-hmm. that, you know, you always, you're always thinking about that drink, that, you know, right. what you just said there. You know, if you tell people, then you cannot have that drink tomorrow because you've got a problem now. So if I keep right. it with me, you know, I, it's okay. I can I can deal with it for the sure. time, for the fuller time being, and I'll deal right. with it as it gets worse. So I right. get it. I get it. I get yeah. it. I get it. Okay. It was uh yeah, and there were multiple moments like that between you know fights with my with my wife at the time. I mean I mean countless because she knew. I mean mm-hmm. and she she saw me. I, I might have been able to hide it from most people, or at least I don't know if hide it's the right word. Uh, I can keep it at bay. They didn't know how bad it was. She knew flat out how bad it was. Mm-hmm. So what ended up happening was um, in 2015, I believe, uh, my wife at that time, she, she'd had enough. Um, mm-hmm. It was This was the final straw. Um, uh, that particular day, uh, I actually wasn't drunk that day. I had drank, don't get me wrong, uh, mm-hmm. but I, hadn't, I wasn't drunk. Um, but I was lying about it, and I was hiding those little shooters anywhere I could hide them. I thought they were great hiding spots. Apparently they weren't that clever. Um, and they found them and the kids found them. Uh, uh, my daughter did. 
and so um, basically it was, it was the ultimatum, you know, you're sober or we're done. Mm-hmm. And so the very next day, semi-reluctantly, um, I went willingly, but I was also doing it for the wrong reasons. I went to AA that day. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was November 1st of 2015. Um, I went to AA that day, not for me. I went it so I didn't lose everything. So my world didn't come crumbling down. Mm-hmm. Um, wife leaving, kids leaving, you know, my house getting kicked out, so forth. But I went to AA and I actually was sober for a year at that point. Mm. Um, you know, and it was, it was a good year. And then like most good, um, you know, smart, intelligent alcoholics, I had a year under my belt and Mm. said, well, look at me. I'm cured. Mm -hmm. Oh, my, I'm good. I get it. Oh, so I, so it was, uh, I actually don't remember the exact date. I can tell you where I was, but I don't remember the date, but it was a little over a year from having sobriety. And I went to meetings fairly regularly in the beginning, but I, I didn't like AA at that time too. I, I also wasn't willing to, I never used the word alcoholic. I, w- I would say I drank too much or alcohol mm-hmm. abuse. Uh, I would never say alcoholic um, back then. And I, you know, it's just, I, I couldn't, that would bruise my ego. I couldn't admit. That's exactly it. You know, exactly. I couldn't admit that, yeah, you have a problem. No, I don't have a problem. I can keep this under control. I really can. So, uh, yeah, a little over a year, I decided, you know what, we're going to give it a shot. And uh, so I had a drink. Actually, I think I had two that day. Uh, and I was, I was good. That's exactly, and it starts off, wow, like I, I can have two now. Like, look at me. Yeah. I, I'm all good. I, I'm cured. You know, right. and then it, it gets yeah. more and more. Yeah. And then, it was, it was, it was like two days. And this is a common story. I, I've heard it from lots and lots of people now, now that I've been sober now for three and a half years. Um, but it was, you know, and I don't even think I drank the next day. I don't, I don't recall for sure, but the following day I know I did. Cause I went, well, look at that. You had three and did or two and he did just fine. Mm. We can have three. Mm-hmm. And, and it just snowballed quickly to the point mm. where after about, I'm going to say two months from that stretch, um, my, my marriage had dissolved and I was, I was leaving the house. And at that time, uh, uh, we were taking care of my grandmother. So my grandmother, my mom's mom. Uh, and so, um, she was actually staying with us. And so when I left, I had nowhere to go. And so grandma and I went back to her house, mm. um, cause she, she had broken her hip, um, and was living with us at this point for at that point, probably a year and a half to two years. Um, and so we went back to grandma's house, just me and her. I was a server at that point. So you remember, I had been a general manager now for 10 years, maybe 12. And now I was just serving tables. Um, ironically at the same company I was originally. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and now I was back at grandma's house. Cause at that point, I didn't have any money saved up. I mean, me and my wife, we never had extra money. I mean, we weren't, we never, had the kids never suffered we never had didn't have food on the table but um you know i always said we had to play utility roulette mm. um where what, what do you want to pay this month but what did we pay last month we paid gas last month all right we're gonna skip it mm-hmm. um so um that's kind of where we always were for the most part anyway um but uh yeah so i was to to put it plainly had it not been for my grandmother and her house i, I was homeless yeah i had nowhere to go i had a job you know, as a server making probably, I I bet you if I had saved everything, I was probably making 24,000 a year, maybe something along those lines, Mm -hmm. but I didn't, I didn't, I sure as shit didn't save everything. Um, 
And so now I have my marriage is gone. Um, and now I'm a server with all this cash and I'm not at this point, I'm not doing well. And I, I ended up going down the wrong end of the bottle quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to the point where, um, six, about six months after that, um, well, let me back up. I guess I should in that point. So during that time, after, um, my wife and I had split, um, I actually now had met Jamie. Um, mm-hmm. you got to meet earlier on, on screen. Yeah. So wave at you, um, at that point, And we really connected, um, you know, after that. And so I actually, it, you know, had, I had zero plans when my wife split of getting in any sort of relationship. I mean, what mm-hmm. you, there's no way it's me and my booze and my bachelor lifestyle. And that's it. Um, but thank God I met her because at that point she had no idea about any of this history either to mm-hmm. her. I was still the charming, witty, kind of yeah. obnoxious, mm-hmm. you know, extrovert that has no problem talking to a stranger in the grocery store. Um, and that's who I was. And so when we went out, we had fun and we went out for drinks and we'd go do this, that, and the other. Um, but then eventually about six months after I left, so only a couple months after dating Jamie, uh, about six months after uh, having to move in with grandma, um, I had a blow up with grandma and my mom who was mm-hmm. at the house at the same time. Uh, and basically now I'm, I'm, I'm homeless again because mm-hmm. I had a blow up and I said, I'm out, I'm leaving. That's it. I'm not getting kicked out at that point, but it was You're thrown on my hand. Yeah. yeah. So I moved in with Jamie mm-hmm. after no. a few, few short months. Yeah. Uh, and again, she, uh, she had no idea. Like I hit it. I was, you know, I always tell people I was professional at hiding this. Uh, most functioning alcoholics are you know you 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 figure out ways like you know in in previous podcasts i my partner knew but you know i didn't realize i was doing this but i would i would on the way to work grab it you know have a beer Mm -hmm. i would have mouthwash ready you Mm -hmm. know if i had a cigarette or anything like that i had mouthwash there ready so no one could smell it on me by the point I got right. to work, I, I was drunk, but not. Yep. I was so good at hiding it. Sure. You know, I, I was more articulate. It was. It was. It seemed like I was more articulate with how I spoke to customers mm-hmm. than when I was sober. Right. So I, I was more. I was a better per. In my eyes, I was a better person when I was somewhat pissed, and and no one right. knew. No one knew. Sure. You know, and I can, I can, yeah, I, same, same thing. You know, you stop at the store on the way to work. And mine at that point, I had moved from beer didn't cut it. I mean, I'd have beers, don't get me wrong, but if I need to get the job, it was just straight up shots. Spirits. Yeah, stop on the way to work. Hmm. Yeah, for sure. And mouthwash or mints or whatever to try to mask it, you hmm. know. Um, so that's in 2017. So that's when things really started turning south. And I didn't recognize how bad it was my health at this point had gotten, which is kind of the leading me to the turning point and the pivot in my life, my story. This is like, let's, let's get into, this is the bit I'm, I'm like, wow about. So (laughs) tell us about, you know, that, that moment when, you know, I read one in the thing you sent me that, you know, they looked at you and went, you know, you're off color. And said you're mm-hmm. going to hospital. So yeah. take it away from there. That yeah. So the the dates and I remember them specifically. It was it was a Sunday. It was January seventh, two thousand eighteen. 
when it really started to take hold, I was, I was moving furniture. Jamie and I actually were moving furniture for a buddy of mine, a couch and whatever else. And, and I didn't feel good. Um, but I simply thought, Oh, you're hungover. You haven't had enough to drink today. I mean, it was only, it was noon and I'd only had a couple of shots at that point, you know? So, I mean, that's gotta be the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, you just, my, my blood alcohol wasn't stable at that point. I was actually sober, um, ish. Uh, and so, uh, it just didn't feel good. Monday felt a little worse. Tuesday, the eighth, uh, I was working, uh, actually current where I'm currently working now at a different role. Um, but one of my employees came up to me and, and she looked at me straight face. And I think it was a little tongue in cheek, but she looked at me and says, Kelly, are you dying? <laughs> and I, I kind of looked at her and went, am I, am, am I, no, I'm not dying. Get back to work. Do you know how busy mm. we are? What do you, no, I'm not dying. Go. The following day, which was Wednesday the 10th, um, my boss came up to me uh, outside of my office. And apparently they had all been talking about me, the, my other management team, my peers and my friends. Uh, and they had talked to me that morning and they all had elected uh, my boss to come and say something to me. Uh, and she comes up to me and she says, Kelly, you need to go to the hospital. You're sick. And I was so in denial and I wouldn't see it. You know, I refused to see it. Um, and I looked at her and I said, no, there's, there's no way I'm going to the hospital. You know how busy I am today? I have this, that, this, that, and the mm. other to do. Like I can't, I'll go after work. Mm. And she paused for a moment. And she says, no, here's, here's, you're not hearing me. I, you can find a ride to the hospital. I can give you a ride to the hospital or, or I can call 911. However you want to handle it is what we'll do. Hmm. And that's really when I went, man, am I that sick? Um, and so Wait, were you in denial at this point? Like when I say in denial, oh, yeah. were you, did you know you, did you have any inkling that you, I, I knew I didn't feel well. I, I didn't hmm. feel good. And I knew that um, I actually hadn't drank Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday at that point. Cause I didn't feel good, which mm. you listen to the rest of my story. That's, that's, <laughs> that's a big deal. Um, and so I knew, I, I knew I didn't feel well, but I didn't know I was in end stage liver failure at the time, um, which is what I was acute end stage liver failure. Uh, and so when the chef comes around the corner, he actually held up a, a post-it note, those little yellow post-it notes uh, mm. next to my face. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen that tissue commercial, uh, but they have one where you do like the white check for your teeth. To see yeah, how white yeah, your teeth yeah, are. Yeah. yeah. So he did that to me with a post-it note and he goes, Nope, that's the color you are right there. And I was jaundiced. My eyes were yellow. My skin was yellow. Mm. Um, I refused to see it, refused to admit it. So, uh, I agreed. I left work. Um, but I didn't get a ride and I didn't, call 911 and I didn't go to the hospital. I drove myself to the local urgent care by my house, which is about 45 minutes away from where I work. Mm. Uh, and so uh, when I walked into the urgent care, you know, you get checked in and the doctor comes in and he looks at me and just says, ask me, so why are you here? So I'm sick. And he goes, there's nothing I can do for you here. You need to go to a hospital. Like oh. I can't help you here. And he plainly looked at me and said, you're drinking yourself to death. And I brushed it off as this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He's only a doctor, you know, I mean, he doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah. <laughs> and so I actually didn't go to the hospital that night. I went the next day. I went home. Um, now, at this point, Jamie's involved. I mean, she was working out of town at that point when I went to the urgent care and I called her and tried to play it off. Hey, just let you know, Teresa, or my boss sent me home from work, um, you know, but I'm just going to go to urgent care. I'll, check, I'll just see you when you get home. 
I mean, she she dropped what she was doing and headed back into town, you know, four hour drive. Mm-hmm. From out of okay. And she was in the hospital with me or the urgent care uh, when I went. So went to the hospital. Um, you know, they weren't really sure at that point. I don't think how how sick I was. And they definitely didn't know how they were going to fix me. So for the next few weeks, I bounced from a couple of different hospitals and we tried multiple different things, um, multiple different theories. I was still, I think, trying to hide how much I drank, Mm. Um, but I was actually detoxing when I got admitted to the first hospital. Finally, for I was there for about a week. Um, And part of this is foggy for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Jamie, this is some of Jamie's words because she was there. Um, But I was uh, delusional and and hallucinating like I couldn't. I, I was I was detoxing. And so I was not making sense all the time. I don't remember it this way, but the people around me do. Um, and that was that first week or so, probably. So I went back and forth, you know, to a couple of different hospitals. But what would happen in, in the beginning, uh, what, what I don't think anybody really knew is that my kidneys had now started to fail as well and were shutting down. Uh, it's called like acute wow. kidney failure. Uh, as a result, because your your kidneys and your liver, they work in tandem. I mean, they have mm-hmm. a very symbiotic relationship uh, internally. And so um, every time they would discharge me, I mean, it would be a day, maybe a day and a half. And I'd have to go back to the ER for mm-hmm. multiple, multiple different reasons. Um, the last one where they discharged me was now we're, we're probably five weeks into it. And I was at my grandmother's house um, where my mom was and I was, uh, and that's where I was, because it was kind of central town versus my house, which is outside of town. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom was there my grandmother was there, uh, and I was there and I was not doing well at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my blood pressure was crashing. I couldn't stay awake. I couldn't get up. So, so by this point, round- they, they have realized what's going on. So they, they know. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The family. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I guess I should, I did kind of gloss over that so when I first got to the hospital um I was adamant with Jamie that she didn't tell anybody I mean Mm -hmm. not not a soul we didn't tell my family I think for 10 days something along those lines Uh, because I was embarrassed I was ashamed I was I was not I was not sorry my (laughs) vacuum's going (laughs) um but uh I was ashamed of where I'd come. I mean, I, you know, going back to that kid in high school, I was supposed to be somebody, you know, I was supposed to be a good dad. I was supposed to be a coach. I was supposed to be in a leadership role. And here I am. I have now drank myself to the point where I'm dying. Mm, like literally you drank your, you're drinking yourself to, you drank yourself to death. Like that's what. Yeah. Happens. Yeah. And I was embarrassed. I, I didn't tell Finally, Jamie said, we have to call your family. Like we, we have to, we can't keep this from them. And at that point too, my relationship with my family was, was rocky to say the least. I mean, I was good with my mom and I was good with my grandma, but it was, I was rocky with my dad and my siblings. Um, it was non-existence with my kids. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't have, I, I had no identity at that point. I was not a dad anymore. I was no longer a parent. Uh, I wasn't a husband, which I had been my entire adult life. Both of those I had been my entire adult life. Um, and that was gone. And that's how I ended up plunging even further, I think, down in, into drinking. And so sitting in the hospital room, she finally said, we need to call your, call your family. So 
um, they came to visit and I think they started to slowly realize how sick I was and what was actually going on. Um, mm. You know, and, and what's, what's fun about it is I could still even, I could still even bullshit some of my family at that point, except for my sister um, who is uh, she's an RN mm. um, and she's, for her entire life has called me on my shit. Like she'll, she'll just tell you how it is. And, and she does it for all three of us boys. Mm-hmm. You know, she'll just, she'll just call you on it. She knew exactly what was going on. She, her and I weren't talking, but she was talking to either my mom and my dad. I mean, let me rephrase. We were talking, but this isn't stuff she would tell me directly. She would tell Jamie or, mm-hmm. or my mom or whoever it was. Uh, no, Kelly's dying. His liver is shutting down. And so, mm-hmm. so we did that for, about five weeks and I'm finally, I'm at my, it's mid February now at this point, I'm at my grandma's house uh, and I'm, I'm having a rough day. I can't, I can't walk. I can't stay awake. I am in so much pain because I'm as big as a house because what happens with liver failure is your liver, which creates and secretes fluids and also, and I can't, I'm not a doctor. I can't, I, although I feel like it should be an expert, but um, basically those fluids now have nowhere to go because your liver is mm. not functioning. So it simply just drains or secretes into your abdomen. And because it's not where it's supposed to, your liver, it just keeps increasing the fluids. And so you turn into being, you know, seriously, as big as I was, I was as big as a house and I was so uncomfortable. My back hurt and my liver hurt and it hurt when I peed. Mm. Um, Cause my, there's a, a level called bilirubin. And when, and when you're, not functioning. In fact, you could probably relate to this, you know, when you were drinking is when you go pee and you have that really dark colored pee because mm-hmm. you're dehydrated and that's your bilirubin or a sign of your bilirubin being off whack. Mine was when I went to the hospital that first time, I was the, it was the color and consistency of Coca-Cola. I mean, it was, it was brown um, mm. and it hurt, mm. you know? Um, and so my dad, they called my dad over. Uh, I'm now in the bed and I can't get up. They want to take me to the hospital, but I can't, I can't move. It takes both of my brothers to get me out of bed and into the car. Yeah. Cause I wouldn't let them call 911. Hmm. Like I should have. But see, it's that, you know, that, that Kelly that is, that's still there. Like it's that little part yeah. of your brain that's, you know, still got that bit of pride trying to yeah. you know, bullshit everyone into what, what's yeah. actually going on. But it's like, it's, right. like, it's trying to hold on and it's yeah. like, no, you got to let go. You've got to let it's- go. It was there pretty much for the next couple of weeks. And finally, when I was at the hospital, I went to the university hospital here in town, um, which is where I ended up having the transplant and having that team work on me. Um, So I got there and the problem that we were having throughout this whole thing is finally, it was really determined that I was an end stage liver failure. Uh, And the hard part about the whole thing was we saw multiple doctors obviously throughout the weeks. and there was quite a few of them that said, there's nothing they can do for me, mm-hmm. um, that I was too far gone. Mm. You know, I was 38 year old and end stage liver failure. And there's no, sorry, sir. You need to get your affairs in order. Um, mm. cause you have a couple of, you have a couple of months at this point before you and shut down. How did you navigate that feeling, that feeling of being told, get your affairs in order. You, you're going to die. What, what, what emotion is that? What, what goes through your head like how, how so, does i i think even at that point i was still in denial you oh. know, <laughs> you have i was you know i went i went okay whatever that's fine we'll go to someone else um you know it was that sort of that sort of attitude about it because i was still in denial and how sick i was like i'm not that sick I, I, there's no way 
I can't be that way. Mm. Um, at least at that point, when it first, the first few times it happened. Um, now, Jamie, on the other hand, um, she knew exactly what it meant. Um, and so there was one uh, doctor that we went to, and it was a specialist, liver specialist, supposed to be the best in town. Uh, we, we got into him quickly because of my mm-hmm. condition. Uh, this is before I ended up at the university hospital. And he did. He gave us both of those speeches uh, about there's there's really nothing I can do for you. Uh, Jamie looked at him square in the face and said, that's not good enough. And she got up. She wheeled me out of the. I couldn't walk. So she wheeled mm. me in my wheelchair right out of his office. Now we went. I mean, she fired him on the spot, basically. Mm. Um, and thank God she did. Imagine, there's yeah, there's imagine. so many there's so many times that, that woman has saved my life. I mean, it's I, I don't know that I can count them anymore. Mm. So. Finally, I end up at the university hospital, uh, and it is determined at this point that a full liver transplant is the only way that I'm going to be uh, cured or, or fixed. I can't say cured, but, but that I'm going to survive is a mm. full liver transplant. Now, now the doctors have a dilemma on their hands, um, and the, 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 dilemma ha- the dilemma has two parts, really. The first part is that I'm too sick for a transplant. Like, even if they find me a liver, and mm. even if mm. they can get me into surgery, I'm not, I'm not going to survive the surgery, and I'm not going to survive the trauma of, of trying to incorporate that new organ into my body. Mm. Um, I'm not strong enough. I don't have it. That was problem number one. Problem number two is why on earth would we mm. waste a perfectly good organ on you? Even if you survive. Well, first, let's find a liver. Then we get it into you and now you survive. What part of your history over the last 15 to 18 years tells us that you're not going to turn right around and go start drinking again and go Mm. back to restaurants and go back to your old lifestyle? Why would we, why would we risk wasting this liver or this organ? Because organs are hard to come by Mm -hmm. and there are plenty of extremely deserving candidates that are on a, on a transplant list all throughout the world. And that's the dilemma the transplant team had to, to weigh those options mm. uh, and weigh those pros and cons about me. I had, um, <clears throat> there were two doctors that were there at the university that I don't know why, um, but they sincerely stuck their necks, their, their, their reputations on the line for me. They stuck their necks out for me and they, they went to bat for me. Hmm. they don't they don't know me i mean they just they they knew me from being working on me the last month or whatever three do, do you see that as some sort of divine you know so, i wouldn't say divine but like a, a guardian angel or or something. someone really looking out for you something in the universe put a lot of things in place for me to be sitting here talking to you um, Jamie is one of them. She's the first one. Had that she not been there that first that first six months, you know, mm. leading up to my surgery, um, I never would have been. I never would have made it to the hospital. Um, I'd have drank myself to death and never had gone. You know, um, someone put those doctors on my working on me. They could have worked a different shift and not gotten my name. It, uh, yeah, I, just, I yeah, I get it. There's so yeah. many different things that I have no good answers for. Um, I just don't. So they, uh, those two doctors put together a plan 
went to the transplant team and somehow convinced them uh, that I was worth the risk, that I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to live a long, healthy life going after this. And, and they convinced them and the transplant team said, okay, well, we're going to do it. So now we're talking, now it's uh, beginning of March of 2018. And so now I'm, now I'm, I'm eligible to be put on the list. And now there's a lot of insurance hooplas and all sorts of stuff that you have to do. So a couple of weeks go by and now I'm officially on the list and I'm waiting for, for an mm. organ. And I jumped right to the top because I am now uh, in acute or not acute, but I am now in, in for real end stage liver failure. I mean, I, at this point I have less than a month. Yeah. Fuck. And so um, they find a, a liver for me and uh, the doctor comes in and gives me the news uh, that my time, you have to get, my time is not exactly accurate on how it all transpired. So I don't know what day of the week or what time of day it was, but I remember him talking to me. Hmm. Um, and he tells me we have a liver and, and that night, um, that the, they were working on the liver and I was going to go down to the OR and ICU to get prepped for surgery. Um, my body started to crash. Um, oh. I now, um, I now, I, um, yeah, it just started to crash. And I do have a theory now looking back as to why that, or why that happened that day. Um, I believe that my body was holding on for as long as it could to get the news that they had found a liver. And once I got that news, somehow subconsciously, I just, I relaxed. I exhaled and went, okay. We oh, made I've it heard here. that before. You know, I, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's my theory. No, no, no. So I, I, it's funny you say this because I was listening and read something about it because my, just to take a step out of this, my father about four years ago did a half Ironman. Mm-hmm. Um, he's had a few heart issues. However, he collapsed at the finish line. He was pronounced dead for 20 minutes, like not 10, oh 20 minutes, couldn't find a pulse, gone, dead. He had a blockage and the blockage was there for the entire race. He could have, he could have died at any other point in that race, but at the finish line, he, he had a heart attack. Wow. So they, they revived him, which, thank God. But there have been so many cases when, when it comes to endurance sports or, or anything of that matter that when you get to the finish line or you see the finish line just there, mm-hmm. your body lets go. Because mm-hmm. it's, it, it, you could look at it as a, as a, you know, your body is under so much trauma. Mm-hmm. right you, you know you've years for your for your case years and years and years of trauma that you put your so much stress and you finally get the somewhat it's going to be okay it's like oh shit and then your body starts to disintegrate same thing with yep. it, you know, and it just makes sense because it, how amazing the human body truly is for sure. comes to this. yeah it I, absolutely i mean and you know when we get talking about some of the other things i completely agree especially when it comes to endurance sports and you know things of that nature how far you can push but i i do think that my body just when it finally heard the news that it, it looked it, it, it silently or whatever it was that we i can't do it anymore you know we my body we can't do it any longer so i end up getting wheeled down to the icu 
uh, prior to surgery because um, the, the, the organ that they found for me um, was so new and, and um, recently harvested uh, that hadn't been bedded yet. So the, the surgeon uh, and one of his uh, residents, um, they flew to Phoenix in the helicopter. I, I believe I have this part of the story right again. I was, I was in and out, but um, they flew to Phoenix to vet, you know, the, the Oregon, the vet, the liver, make sure it's going to work for me. Mm. Made the call that, yep, it's going to go. So that's when I got wheeled down to the ICU. Then they flew back. They, the hospital flew the private jet because you need a, a specific certified person that can carry a courier that can carry mm. live organ, the private jet to go get it and bring it back. So as that's happening, um, I'm now bleeding from everywhere, mm. anywhere. Um, I'm in the ICU and I'm puking up blood. Uh, I'm coughing up blood. My liver is, is shutting down. Um, I have, I have bleeding out my nose. Jamie is now sitting next to me in the ICU um, with a, a blood bucket for me. Mm. Um, and every few minutes she has to dump it out as I, as I drift in and out of consciousness. Um, you know, she's, you know, sobbing from what I remember. Um, and you know, dumping the, dumping the bucket and then cleaning it up. And at some point in that evening, um, the ICU nurse turns to her and basically says, if, if this doesn't happen in the next six or seven hours, he's, he's not going to make it. Mm. Um, we need to get him into the OR and, and now, cause I was no longer just simply dying. I was now actively dying. My body was trying to die at this point, you know, to put it in perspective for, for folks. So I had 20 plus, it was like 25 or 27 plus blood transfusions mm. prior to going into surgery. That was before they opened me. Mm. Up. Uh, that's how much I was, I was bleeding. So, um, I get wheeled in. Um, I do remember that part getting wheeled in. And the next thing I really truly remember was waking up. I think it was two days later. And, and this is the part that I, that I never know how to, I never know what words to pick. So when I woke up, you know, my eyes open and I'm still hooked up to the ventilators down my throat and I have all these tubes and, and whatnot, but, but, um, Jamie's on this side, holding my hand and my sister's on this side, holding my hand and I, all my, my family is there. My son is there. Um, and I just am overwhelmed with gratitude. I mean, just it's, it's, it's just, I was the essence of that word. I made it to the other side. I shouldn't have been here. Like I shouldn't be here mm -hmm. right now. I, I remember how sick I was just a few hours before. I mean, I, I shouldn't be here and I'm thankful for my family. And I'm, you know, that they're here and they stuck with me and they're actually, they're here holding my hands. I'm thankful for the doctors that have worked for me, you know, worked on me for the last months at this point. I mean, it's at this point, we're three months into this journey in the hospital and simultaneously the amount of guilt, the, the, the the, the soul crushing guilt. I, I couldn't have one. I, I couldn't have that. one emotion without the other. Yeah. You know, yeah. they're intertwined. You, it's like you've come out the other side and that, you know, see, so you, you never had that guilt in the past, you know, yeah. you deny, deny, deny. And in a, in a, in a roundabout way, that guilt 
is help it is it shows that you you're like from from what i read you know you to come back and have that first initial you know just gratitude towards life to me that shows you you in that moment that instant you woke up you were a different person you know you, 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 you without a doubt you transformed you know you have put your body under so much trauma and stress and you've come out the other side you know you that was rock bottom that was the absolute and utter rock bottom you died you you died you were reborn you were reborn as someone new and to have that guilt it's just like a you needed to feel that guilt to me from reading it it was like you needed to feel you needed to feel that Mm-hmm. And and it it may I completely understand, you know that that rebirth of coming coming from that dark place, and and in your case, literally crawling out of that hole, out of that that dark 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 nasty spot, and 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 being reborn into who you are today, which I I just like yeah, blown away, absolutely blown away. You know, it's it's an amazing story from start to finish. Um, you know, so you know, you you wake up, you've got a, a you're flooded with so many emotions. Mm-hmm. Where where does that, you know, of course, well, it was, it was the, tough. the road to recovery um, is not going to be linear. Yeah, it was yeah. it was tough because now let's just take emotionally speaking. I'm I'm raw. I, I yeah. have I have all of these emotions that I truly feel like I've never felt or dealt with before. Because mm. I was masked. I was always I was always drunk. I was always on stage. You know, at work I was on stage with my my family. I was on stage. I was never just me and feeling whatever it was that I'm supposed to be feeling in that moment. I never did. And so now I have more emotions than than i can count and i have zero way of of coping with them or even knowing even knowing what they are you know uh jamie's father came to visit me uh after surgery i'm probably three or four days i'm still in the icu and they came down they were trying to support her because you know she's she's still got a job we still have a house we still have kids um Mm. so they came down to support her but now he's in my room and uh, both him and and um, so my soon-to-be father-in-law and, and mm. mother-in-law, um, they're visiting me in my ICU room, and and he starts to tell me about how he's helping me at home, and he's doing, you know, he's pulling the weeds, and he cleaned up the dog shit, and he did all this other stuff, and I, dude, I lost it. I started crying, dying, crying, like bawling. So, oh my god, what are you crying for? And all I could think was, look at what I'm doing. This man has to do my chores for me because of the shit that I've done in my life. Like I can't even take care of my own house because I'm laid up here with a hole in my stomach that goes from here to here. And this guy who, who shouldn't love mm. me, you know, there's no way look at the, look at the man, your daughter just picked. Why on earth are you here supporting me from 500 miles away and now doing my chores. And I did, I just, I started bawling. Um, and there were multiple moments like that. Um, there were family friends that would come, um, two people specifically who actually worked at the hospital who I've known since I was two, I think, cause my, um, they were family friends and they came to visit with me 
And as soon as they walked in the door, I started, I just started crying. I couldn't, I could not, it just happened. And it was because I had never, I believe, had never actually truly felt emotion before. And I didn't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. I didn't know how to feel them. I didn't know what they were. I didn't know how to cope. So that was a big part of the next few months. So part of that plan that I told you the doctors had, had put together for the transplant team was after transplant. Uh, I now had a year's worth of what's called smart recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, very similar to AA uh, as far as the destination we're traveling in sobriety, very different vehicles, um, mm. um, but similar ideas. So I had to do that. I had to go to therapy at least once a week, uh, mm-hmm. with a, with a counselor and a therapist. Um, I told her I wanted to go twice uh, a week, right out of surgery for the first, I don't know how many weeks I went twice a week because I had to, I, I didn't, I had no idea what, what to do or how to do mm. or any of it. So the emotional side of things took a while. I got, should I even talk about this part? Um, I got into a really, really dark place. I'm going to say six weeks to five months after transplant. When I got home, you know, mm-hmm. now life is, I, life wasn't normal, but I'm at home. But it, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's played yeah. out and plateaued for right. Me. Right. You know, family's gone home. I no longer am in the hospital. You know, mm-hmm. um, I'm now at home. I can't work because I'm not allowed. Um, I can't really, I couldn't drive because I'm not allowed. I'm not physically capable of doing it. Um, and man, I got, I was in a dark place. I, I, I was sad. Mm. And it was, again, my drinking, I lost everything. I no longer have a relationship with my kids. And I, I, at that point, I kind of had a relationship with my, my parents and my siblings. Um, still have my relationship with Jamie. Thank mm-hmm. goodness. Because who knows what would have happened if I didn't mm-hmm. at that point. So what I ended up doing um, was part of my recovery, uh, physical recovery was, um, you know, it started at my grandmother's house because I couldn't, right after surgery, I couldn't, I couldn't walk on my own. I couldn't stand. I mean, I was, I was skin and bones. So part of uh, my disease, what happens when your liver shuts down is, is it no longer produces any enzymes or proteins and all the things that livers do, but your body still needs them. So it consumes all of those proteins. And so I had zero muscle tone. Plus I'd been in the hospital, laid up in a hospital mm. bed for four months. I mean, I had mm-hmm. zero muscles. So if I went down and I fell, uh, you I couldn't down. get up. Somebody <laughs> had to get, yeah, somebody had to come get me. Oh man, the worst after surgery, I'm, I'm now three or four days away from being discharged. And I'm, now they have just now given me permission to go to the bathroom all by myself. I didn't have to call a nurse. I know I graduated. So I go to the bathroom uh, and I do my business and now I'm getting changed uh, into my shorts. So I, I didn't like wearing the hospital gown. So I wore these big baggy basketball shorts and t-shirt. And so I'm getting changed and I went to sit in the little, you know, those little hospital chairs that they have, they're like little recliners, right? I went to yeah, go yeah, sit yeah. Well, I, I didn't lock the wheels and so <laughs> the wheels, I didn't fall, but the wheels kind of just slid out from underneath me and I just went boop, down. I went onto my, onto my rear. 
And uh, I tried for 15 minutes to put, I wasn't going to call. Yeah. Nuts. I just got released. Like I'm not calling. There's no way. Yeah. I tried so hard to pull myself back up. And so then finally my nurse comes in and he opens the door. He fell, did you? I I didn't fall. I sat relatively gingerly. Yeah. But I can't, but I can't stand back up. So he says, Yeah, but I gotta report it as a fall. You're gonna have to get us whenever you have to go to the bathroom. So I extended it. So anyway, (laughs) so you know what? I was at uh, between my grandmother's house and my house because Jamie again she had just now not worked basically for three months and so she had to go back to work so Monday through Friday I would stay with my mom and my grandmother and then weekends I would come home and I had to have 24-hour care because I couldn't walk without a walker um, mm. I couldn't I'd have to take wheelchairs for longer distances if we went out to the store to, to the, visit my baseball team or whatever it was uh, and so it started with my first goal was I'm going to go get the mail from the mailbox. That was my first goal. And so I, I put on my extra baggy basketball shorts. Cause I, again, I just, you know, scarred and stitches and staples and everything mm-hmm. here to here. And so, um, I shuffled with my house shoes out to the mailbox and back. And I did that a few times. And then I went to the neighbor's house and then I went to, you know, the next neighbor and so forth and so on until finally I could walk around the block. So then eventually, uh, the story I like to tell um, is a few weeks later, uh, our youngest, uh, Jamie's son, um, was graduating eighth grade. And so we were going to do eighth grade pictures. And we have this um, really um, uh, neat national park next to our house, by a few miles away anyway. It's up in the foothills. It's really serene. It's in the Sonoran Desert. So those big saguaro cactuses you always see on TV yeah. about Arizona. Mm-hmm. They're everywhere. And so uh, we got to take pictures. And as we get there, we take, you know, the parking lot's up here, a little bit, you can see me up here a little bit. And then you walk down this ramp, this handicap accessible ramp down to where we're going to go take pictures. We walk down. Do that for about an hour. And finally we're done. And I look at it and I actually have a picture. I'll, I'll send you the picture of when mm. I was there. You can see how skinny I was. I mean, I was real thin. Mm. And so we're leaving and I tell James, yeah, I need to go. I'm, I need to take a nap. I'm pretty tired. I wore out. I mean, I was out now for the day. And mm-hmm. so, I'm walking back, and as I'm looking back, I kind of glance to my right, and there are 17 steps that lead back up to the parking lot to my right. And I look over to my left, and there's the ramp that we took here. Mm. But the ramp kind of winds all the way back around and then up to the parking lot. So significantly longer walk. Look back to the right, kind of look back to the left. And finally, I look at Jamie, and she (laughs) she knew exactly what I was thinking. And she she just kind of shakes her head, and she goes, no, we're going to take the ramp. Yeah. We're going to go this way. No, I'm going to take the stairs. Yep. Yep. yep we're yep. we're, we're, we're going to take the ramp. Kelly, it's, you're, you're tired. You don't have your walker. Like, no, we're going to take the stairs. And we went back and forth like this. And no, I'm taking the stairs. Finally, I looked at her and said, James, I'm, I'm going to take the stairs and I'm not going to use the handrail. And finally, that's when she just let go and conceded and said, okay, mm-hmm. okay, we're doing this. So I climbed the 17 steps without that handrail, mind you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got up to the top, and it it, it was like I won the Super Bowl. Oh, so nice. I let out this, this, yeah, I let out this barbaric just, whoa, with the top of my lungs in this very quiet and serene and tranquil place that echoed for miles, I think. Yeah. You know, people are looking at me like, what the f- is wrong with this dude? Like, he has problems. As I'm high-fiving, you know, Ryan, our, our youngest, I'm yeah. high-fiving him and he's going, oh my God, this guy's lost it. 
as I made it. And so, but it is, it's those little moments, man. Like the first time I took a shower by myself standing up. Little I mean, I was, just little wins. That was, that was awesome, you know? So I'm slowly getting better, physically better, um, but I am not doing well mentally at this point. Again, I, you know, I've heard, you know, other podcasts like Ritual, for example, he talks about it and, and, and recover, people in recovery, you know, you have all these new emotions that you've never had in your life because you're actually sober and I have no way of dealing with them. So what I ended up finding was I ended up, I ended up retreating to the mountains and hiking. Mm-hmm. Um, it was fantastic. I mean, I've always loved nature. I've always been outdoorsy, but I've never appreciated it like the way I did. I went two to three times a week and it was just me and my dog. And I would pick the trails and it, it, God, it drove Jamie nuts, but I would pick the trails that nobody else would pick. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be around people. I just wanted just me. And I wanted to listen to the pine trees below because we don't have many of them here. Um, I loved going hiking in the, in the big monsoon thunderstorms because you just, I just get soaked, you know, and, and walking around in the mud and I'd spend it all day out there multiple times a day. So what it ended up doing for me was twofold, two parts. I got physically healthier because I'm, I'm hiking in the mountains. Uh, and then mentally I didn't, I had no idea at the time, but I was starting a mindfulness practice. That's exactly. Yes. 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 yes, Learning how to be present. Uh, I had no idea that's what I was doing, uh, but that's what I was doing. Uh, And so, yeah, I mean, the mountains were great. Like I, um, I went out for a, a trail run on Sunday. Uh, So your Saturday. And I was explaining, I I took a few of the, the guys out and, you know, we're talking about do I do I listen to music when I go for a trail run? And I just don't know. I, I love yeah, listening to the what, what's going on around me. There's something, you know, there's something mystical, there's something special about yeah. being in that moment, listening to your steps, making sure, yeah. you know, your, your your foot placement's right because yeah. you ha- you have to be present. Yep. Or, or like you don't have to be present, but if you're not present, you know, you're going ass overhead. You're going to hurt yourself. Right. If you're not present, you will be in a hurry uh, paying attention to what's going on. Yeah. You can't wander off. And I, I'll take my family out and the kids and my nieces and nephews or my teenagers, and I'll take them out to the mountains and they'll say the same thing. Well, can we bring music? Nope. Not allowed. Like no headphones, no speakers, no nothing. And so one of my favorite phrases that drives them insane is no, I want you to listen to the silence. Just listen to it. I love Just it. Just sit there. Love it. Listen to the silence. So hiking became my new passion. And so one of actually one of the, the uh, one of the things they do with transplants is they give you this big binder mm. of all the do's and don'ts about transplants, mostly don'ts, by the way. Um, and on that, in that binder, I was talking with my case manager and she basically had told me, um, pretty back. All right, there we go. Um, so there you go. Sorry. I had a phone call that came in. Uh, so my tra- my case manager told me, she goes, uh, it's going to be six months before you start to feel like yourself again. It's going to be a year before you are, but before you start to be six months. And I basically was like, that's not going to work. Yeah. I, I can't do this for six months. So four months after that conversation, I took Jamie for an eight mile hike in the mountains at that point. We didn't go all the way to the top that day, but, but it was fantastic. Now, Looking back, I probably overdid it that day because I was, man, I was hurting for, for a week. 
Um, but it was, it was awesome because you're in the mountains and you're, and you're learning how to be present and out there. So, um, October of that year is really where, uh, I started to find my new passion. And so I was on a hike up, it's called Florida Canyon outside of here. I was trying to make it all the way to the top of this ridgeline. And I called my sister to, uh, kind of show her and share her, with her where I was and show her how far I had made it this day. You know, we're looking at this view via FaceTime or whatever we were on. And uh, and she said, you know, she goes, Kelly, you, you should do a half marathon with me next month. <laughs> what are you what are you nuts? There's no way I can run 13 miles. Absolutely not. She goes, she very plainly and quietly, she goes, again, remember the one that calls me on my shit. Um, and she goes, Kelly, how far is your hike today? I don't know, it's like 14 miles. And she just kind of went. Next day, I signed up for a half marathon. I'd never signed up for a race in my entire life. I never ran. I was a baseball player. Like, we didn't run. Are you kidding? I didn't like running. Uh, and so then I, I ran a half marathon with her a month later and loved it. I had so many endorphins. And this is seven months after my transplant. Um, yeah. Whoa. Yeah, seven months, almost to the day after my transplant. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was six months after I got out of the hospital. I spent a month afterwards. And I, I absolutely loved it. I mean, you know, you get it. I mean, that runner's high and it's my first race ever. You know, I wasn't fast. Don't get me wrong. I did the, I did the half marathon three hours plus or whatever it was. So, um, but I didn't care. I got, I finished, you know, um, doing something I didn't think I was gonna. So, um, that following, so that's 2018. So that following year, I really, I did. This, is, quite, this is like quite recent. Like this is, yeah, this is, this is, November that half marathon was November of 2018 so it was two and a half years ago now so I think this like is that. like a this is a real good segue into you know racing and and sure. like because I'm just having a look for time right now I think we've got about 20 or so 15 minutes left okay um but I think you know I think this is a really good way to get into you know your let's have okay let me ask you where do you what what do you want to do where, like you know do you want to become a trail runner like or do you just want to enjoy it or where, where's the transition what 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 do you want to do what what races have you got coming up i know you sent me a list of those you've like got a really big sure. i got a big year coming up so uh yeah i have officially dove down that endurance sports <laughs> rabbit hole um, yeah, it's, it's no longer, a, it's no longer a, a pastime. It's now an obsession at this point, I think, mm. especially if you ask my family, they look at me like I'm nuts and crazy. So, uh, last year in 2020 was really when it started getting going. Um, you know, I just, I, at that point I had, you know, I ran a few races or whatever, nothing significant. Mm. Um, but last year, uh, I'm going to say June of 2020 ish, give or take, uh, I started going, I want to run a hundred mile race. I heard about them on podcasts or whatever it was. I want to run. And specifically, I want to run Leadville. Um, so, you know, of course, you know, like a good true alcoholic, we don't do anything half-assed. We, we were going to do it. We're going to do it, you know? Um, so yeah, so let's pick Leadville. Cause that's, you know, one of the easy ones. Right. And so I read Charlie Engel's book. Mm -hmm. uh, I read Rich Roll's book. I read David Goggins. Uh, mm -hmm. I read as many, anything I could find about, about that stuff. And so it led me two places. One, it led me to a plant-based whole food diet, um, which I've been on 
that's now. another one I want to skim over. You know, how, how yeah. is that treating you? Because I've recently uh, not going plant based, but more vegetarian, not strict. Right. It's just trying to adapt that into the family life as well. Sure. Um, sure. But how is that treating you when it comes to recovery, uh, athletic performance? I love it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely love it. I'll, I'll never go back. Um, and it only took a few couple, three weeks for me to really feel the benefits. I mean, it was a short period of time. And I come from like, we had state dinners on Sundays growing up. I mean, 20 people would come over. We had T-bones all over the place. You know, I mean, um, my entire family is are carnivores. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I absolutely love it. So I just decided one day, um, I actually had told Jamie, uh, cause I had been thinking about it after reading all these books or whatever. And finally, you know, I'd look at Jane, I go, so James, I've been thinking, uh, which is my phrase for her. And she knows something crazy is going to about to come out of my mouth. And so I see, yeah, I'm going to go vegan. Uh, and that was last summer. And I've been that way ever since. I mean, I, I, we switched almost immediately. We wanted to check with my doctors uh, and make sure that it was smart, uh, at that point. Cause I have to, you know, I do have to pay attention with my transplant on what I do and what I eat, but my dietitian was gung ho. I mean, she was all for it. She said, mm-hmm. absolutely, let's do it. And so we start talking about different numbers, whatever, but yeah. And it's, it can't, it's easier than you think. I mean, it really is not terribly difficult, but what I always tell people now when they ask me about it, it's like, just start small. You don't have to go cold Turkey. Just pick one thing that mm. you don't, I want to cut out whatever it is, red meat. You can keep all the chicken and fish and whatever else and eggs and dairy, just cut out the red meat. And pretty soon you're not going to notice you're not eating it. And then, you know, for me anyway, I was kind of slowly trending that way. Anyhow, mm. you know, trying to dive into these endurance sports. So, um, but yeah, going plant-based is, uh, it's fantastic. I love it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's helped. I wake up better. I sleep better. I, I'm better at work. My, mm-hmm. my energy levels, you recover, like you don't have any inflammation in your joints or your back doesn't hurt mm-hmm. your legs. Or if you do have a good hard workout, you know, and your legs are sore, it doesn't last that long. That lactic acid gets flushed right out. You're drinking enough water. You're eating mm-hmm. the right foods. You're fueling your body properly. For performance. So, yeah. Well, and I think it's, you know, it's a relationship with food. That's the big thing. It's, you know, I use food as fuel now. It's Mm -hmm. not used as comfort or reward or Mm -hmm. the easy way, you know, like those things. And so you have to be mindful about it. I mean, you have to be intentional. I can't just, we're taking a big trip with the family coming up actually tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we're going uh, and with the family and they're very, very worried about me and not being able to eat because right? I'm the only, I'm the only vegan. Yeah. And I tell them like, guys, it's okay. I'll, I'll there, you have a grocery store somewhere near the house. You'll say, figure it out. Don't worry about me. I'm good. I'm good. Don't you sweat it. Um, but you have to be intentional. You know, I can't, it's hard for me to eat. Like it's going to be hard at the airport. That's it's difficult to find stuff, you know, or, or a baseball game or whatever, but, uh, but I love it. I mean, we can talk about that. Like, you know, I, 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 no, I, I feel like I could talk to you for, for, you know, it's already been an hour and I was going to say it's been a while. Have you? Yeah. So look, I, we could like, I, again, I could talk for years on this type of stuff. Right. Um, no. So, so I think... well, specifically about the racing part and then really how you and I got connected, uh, you know, cause I want to set up run for your life down here in Tucson. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, yeah one of the things I want to do after listening to your podcast, because I think it is a fantastic idea and I don't believe there's anything like it, at least not in Southern Arizona, maybe up in Phoenix, but I don't think so. I'm not, I don't know for sure. So what ended up happening, I started running a few races 
you know, small ones. Uh, and then I joined a local running group. Um, I'll give them a shout out to my Southwest Endurance family. I mean, that's my sweat. My sweat family is what we're called. Cool. Um, but I joined that running group last year and it's been fantastic. So now they help me with, you know, technique and cadence and form and, mm. you know, breathe, breathing and all that different stuff. So now my running not only has, was now do I have a, you know, kind of a team and a club and whatnot, but now, God, now it's fun too, mm. you know, cause now you, now you, you know, when you're running with more ease and, and purpose behind it. Um, so now the races are getting better. So, so I started with them and then all of a sudden last year, at Christmas Eve of last year, uh, I told my friends, I said, I'm going to run a marathon. And my mm-hmm. coaches, by the way, did not like that idea, uh, even a little bit. The furthest I had ever ran before was 13 miles for a half marathon. I ended up mm-hmm. three of those, five of those, whatever it was. Uh, and I said, no, I'm going to run a full marathon. And so I had it set up logistically. Jamie was my aid stations. <laughs> yeah. So she would drive. She would, I, she got me to the starting line. She would drive like six miles and meet me uh, on this. We have a, a, a path. It's called a loop that goes all around Tucson. And I wrote, I just ran that. So no cars, no nothing. And she'd meet me in six miles. She'd make sure I was good, water, food, good. And then she'd drive another six or seven miles. But what ended up happening was I had friends that wanted to join in and would come with me. So I had two sets of friends that met and ran with me for seven miles. And then another set of friends came and ran with me the last six. I had other sets of friends that couldn't come down uh, that ran their own half marathons in support up in Prescott, which is about three and a half hours from here. So it started this kind of this whole to do. And we may even just try and do it every Christmas Eve, maybe. I don't know. We'll see um that's your power that is your power that look what you've you like and and this is why you know i i as soon as you asked i went yeah got like there was something about you know your story that i uh, that i don't know what it was there's a leadership there's a hidden talent there that you know you have as well and that's why i'm like go for it because you can bring people together you want to connect people you want to be around people right exactly you know that translates from you know, hospitality in the early days. Mm-hmm. Sure it does. Well, you want to be around good people because yep. these customers weren't bad people. You know, you get the bad shit one every now and again. But, you know, I can see how this is all played out for you. And, you know, in and again, in hindsight, it's all hindsight. And right. it's played out exactly how, you know, how it should have. Right. That way. I, cool. I completely agree. You know, it, I said in the past, you know, for all the as hard as this was, you know, my, my, all the years drinking, obviously the, the time during my transplant, it, it had to happen. It, mm. I had to go through that to get here. I, I never would be here if I didn't do that. And this is where I'm supposed to be. Uh, I'm, I'm supposed to be doing what I'm doing right now. I'm supposed to, you know, the phrase that I use, and I stole this from a movie, but the, the phrase that I used when I, when I woke up that day um, in the ICU was, I am going to earn this gift every day from here on out, from, from, for the rest of my days, every day I'm going to earn it. Um, and I'm going to earn it in different ways. Yeah, I, I, it does. It speaks to me because there's no reason I should be here. There's none. I, sh- I shouldn't be here today. You were cho- you like you, you got to look at it. You were some for some godforsaken reason. You were chosen to to be here. 
You know? And I think the reason is so that I could help other people in every way that I can. So even at my job, I help, I help families. Being in service. Yeah. You know, I, I went and I am now a facilitator for that smart recovery program um, that I, that helped me, you know, that first uh, the year since not that first year, but especially that first year. Um, I actually work with other transplant patients now um, as they go through their journey on transplants. I never, I never had anyone to, to kind of talk to me. Jamie never had anyone at what we're supposed to, because life is a freaking whirlwind when that happens. So we're there to kind of help answer questions and say, no, 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 that's normal. No, no, no. It, <laughs> well, that was the one's embarrassing, but yeah, it's normal. You know, it's, it's, it, we're going to help you get through your own transplant. So we do that now. In fact, one of my guys uh, just got done with a double transplant mm. um, a month ago. Like the first one didn't work and he was dying all over again. And so they had to get him another one. And so now he just got home. I've never met the man, um, but we're, we're family at this point because we spent the last year together. So um, that's what I, that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to help people, whether it's through their wellness journey, you're talking to you about, you know, plant-based diets and, and whole foods, you know, that's, I would have never, ever done what I'm doing now. Had I not damn near killed myself drinking, I, it would have never happened. Yeah. And yeah. That's why I'm here. And so like coming up, what I want to do is, is inspire people by doing some crazy stuff that I do. So that we're all running thing. Like last year we did, um, it wasn't running, it was hiking, but I, I work with a program called the Teen Launchpad Center, which is up in Prescott for those friends of mine that work there. But we hiked rim to rim at the Grand Canyon uh, in one day. Um, now it's not the rim to rim to rims and, you know, however many people times people do it, but we do, and we raise money. Um, I did that last year. I did a hundred mile race at the Tour de Tucson. I had to go buy a bike to ride that race because I didn't own a bike. Mm. I never ridden a, ridden a race before in my life. Um, but I decided I wanted to go do it and I'm going to go do it. Um, and that was about a year after transplant or so, something like that. And so my running, you asked if I wanted to be a trail runner and I'm, I'm headed that way. Mm. Not there quite yet, but I'm getting there, but I ran the one marathon, uh, last Christmas Eve. I did my buddy. I suckered him into doing the David Goggins, uh, four by four, four by four by 48. Uh, we did, in fact, actually I got the shirt on right now. I was about to say, um, yeah, I got it right there. And so, uh, we did that back in March and that was fan freaking fantastic. And again, people look at you like, what are you nuts? You're going to get up every four hours and go running. Yes, ma'am. We're doing it. Mm, so then, yeah. uh, I've got, uh, coming up now, um, I'm going to do my first triathlon in two weeks. Nice. Nice. Never done one of them before. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not a very good swimmer. We'll see what, how this what, goes. What distance is that? Oh, it's, it's a sprint. So okay. it's, it's off. Um, but it's my first one. So as long as I don't drown, I think we're going to call it a victory. Um, and so then moving through this year, there are lots, lots to come. So I'm doing the rim to rim again. We're raising money, uh, for the, the trek for teens, uh, and the, the launch pad. Then after that next month, that's in October. Uh, then I've got a, the tour de Tucson in November. I've got another, uh, actually I just upped it. It's not no longer going to be a marathon in December. It's going to be a 50 K. Yeah. Um, cause, cause why not? I mean, you already ran 26 miles. What's five more. It's fine. Exactly. Uh, and then in January, it all come, you know, comes, uh, to, to a head in January. Cause I'm going to do my first ultra marathon, uh, it's 52 and a half mile trail race, uh, in the mountains outside of Phoenix. So I'm stoked. Uh, you're, training you're just started for it. 
Yeah, cool. No, that's all. Like again, I think you know, just to sort of wind this down and bring it bring it back down, land this plane. Um, you know, I think there's a lot that people like. Even listening to you talk just then, you know, and and I was pulling stuff out of that, you know, and I'm like, you, 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 uh, you, res- you died and got resurrected, you know. Yeah. You, you were here for for some purpose you know and you slow you're slowly you're slowly figuring it out and it's just it's a it's a fucking beautiful narrative it's a book it is a story the listeners can really connect to you know because if i i i don't think you know i have different tastes to other people and you know but i think how i connect to my listeners they will connect to this story sure and and again, you know, for you to reach out to me and, and ask to start at Run for Your Life is like, wow, go for it. I want you to make that your baby in Arizona. You you do what you run with it, um, you know. And I like just thank just thank you for being so vulnerable through that whole story, like narrative. You know, I'm I'm so I'm blown away i'm seriously blown away by that and i think i'm not going to say you owe jamie because she did it because she she loved you you do not owe her she did it because yeah of course you know you want to pay back the favor but she didn't do it for any other reason um she other than she loved you you know um yeah you know she And you don't owe the people around you. And this is what I've come to. You know, I thought I owed people an apology. And I, I, if I treated them wrong, of course I did. But the people were there because of you. People that wanted, who are standing around you, you know, your family, you don't owe them anything. They were there because your family, you, they love you. That unconditional love was there. So, you know, to, for you to owe it to yourself. You, know, you said you're going to pay it back every single day, and I think that's a very, very powerful sentiment to have. I think you know this whole story is powerful. Uh, I think you know to wrap to sort of wrap this up. What is something you know you can give the listeners? You know, a little saying or or something, just something to you know to nail that coffin. You know, what what. what All right. Um, well, I think part of what I try to do every day, and this is something that I, I didn't invent this. Somebody, I, I was told this, um, actually I heard this start every day with a little, just, just a little bit of gratitude. That's it. Take five minutes, 15 minutes, whatever it is that you want to do, but think about what you are truly grateful for. And I don't mean that the, the, the common things that you're grateful for, like my family's healthy and the roof over my head. I mean, really get down to why are you grateful sincerely? And it's just for you. You don't have to talk about it. You don't have to share it. It's just simply for you. And just take a few minutes and do that. I like to do it personally right after I work out or run in the mornings uh, mm-hmm. and before I go to work. So in that transition phase um, and really just take, like I said, five minutes or 15 minutes, and it really sets my, the tone for my day. Mm-hmm. 
And what happens, at least in my experience in my life, what happens is that work gets stressful, but it doesn't when you start gratitude wise. I mean, it doesn't get stressful because whatever, whatever is stressful in that particular moment really is not that big a deal. So I start with a little bit of gratitude. In fact, here you go. I'll, I'll leave it with this one little story. We were camping and hiking. Jamie and I were. I don't think she knows the story. And I was sitting on the end of the tailgate of my truck. And it was just me. There's no one else around me. It's simply me. And I watched an oak leaf fall and flutter all the way to the ground. And as I watched it, I was kind of looking at it. And I thought to myself, I went, I am the only person in the history of time that had the privilege of sitting right here and watching that happen. Hmm. It was only my moment. Nobody else, nobody else got that. And I was thankful to be there right at that moment. And I know it's something small as a leaf falling, but it, but man, that grounds me when I think about stuff like that, it just puts life in perspective when you, when you take that approach Mm. Uh, to whatever it is in your life you know you, you take that approach and truly be grateful for what is happening to you or around you or for you um, i think that'd be the that'd be the one piece of the one piece of advice to to help people through the day oh i think it's just beautiful i completely i completely and utterly understand you know i i practice before i go to bed i've actually got a reminder on my phone i said uh three things you're grateful for you know, affirmation sort of thing every every night before i go to bed and you know i come up with the darnest shit like i am great like, you know the other night was i am grateful that i got to have air, you know air conditioning in the car you know whilst it was cold like just very sure. simple stuff but it was like no i'm genuinely grateful for that because right. I no you know and i think you know it it's grounding. It's so grounding. And you find yourself in certain situations and you, you get brought back to that being, just being great. I don't know how to articulate it, but, you know, I, I think you getting what I'm putting down is, you know, it, for it's sure. and, and, and you sort of realize that, you know, life's pretty fucking good for what it is, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, you know, things that you thought were, were bad aren't really that bad like and, and especially for you you would know exactly what bad so, is so, it's no, it's awesome. i always go i go back to those 10 seconds after i woke up those first 10 seconds that gratitude and guilt and that that is a humbling humbling emotion to go back to so it, it puts things in perspective for you no matter what's going on so mm. well, awesome i think that's a really good way to sort of wrap this episode up um and oh yeah for for those who are listening um i'll leave all here kelly's information in the show notes um but other than that yeah look thank you so much for sharing everything share putting that on a platter for everybody and i think you know you'd never be never ever be embarrassed about that story because there is so much power and and, and so many things nuggets people can pull from that like you you, you got to be proud of where you are now and be proud of where you're going for so, sure well i appreciate it mando thank you for thank you for having me i i'm sincerely humbled that uh that you asked and i'm i'm forever grateful that we got connected miracles of the universe that kind of made our paths cross from across the world 
That's how it works. That's how it works. How was that, guys? You know, I had a really, really fun time recording that with Kelly. He's such, you know, such a humble, down-to-earth guy. Um, But, yeah, look... I really hope you guys can take something from his story um, because I did. I, you know, even talking to him there after reading bits about him, I, I was blown away with that story. You know, very, very powerful. Um, you know, to show that you can hit rock bottom and and bounce back. You know, that's my biggest takeaway from it. Um, you know, and I hope you can take something similar away. If not, you know, each to their own. I'm not forcing you. <laughs> But yeah, look, thank you so much for tuning into this um, this fortnight. Hopefully you can do them weekly, but right now, logistically with the family, it's just not working out with weekly. But yeah, look, thank you so much again for tuning in to the Running Deep podcast with me, your host, Kent Mullins. Peace.